0: It is often said that expectations are everything. Uh, Everyone in this room, I would imagine, has had at least one experience where we have very high uh, expectations of something, and then those expectations slam into reality, and we realize that our expectations were very off. Maybe a job that you thought, once I finally get this job, everything else in my life will settle down. It will all fit right into place. All of my longings will be met. And then you get the job, and it's empty. And you're incredibly disf- dissatisfied. Or maybe marriage, you thought, uh, that will certainly satisfy me. Everything my heart has ever longed for since I saw my sir- first Matthew McConaughey movie will be met. Right? Once I'm married, and then you get married, and it takes one second And you realize, I I married a sinner. What happened? I thought I married this sinless person, right? Or perhaps in a room like this, the most uh, prevalent example would be children. We all grow up. We see other parents doing terrible, right? And we're like, "Mm, they don't know how to discipline. When I have kids, I'll let the world know how it goes. And you have beautiful children who are beautiful but are also little bitty sinners. uh, And you realize, yeah, expectations Reality, right? It hits like a tidal wave. And today we're going to see a passage where we see the same pattern with Jesus, where we have incredibly high expectations for him and what he will mean as we encounter him for our lives. And then we're going to actually get to see Jesus set reality, which hits these two characters that we'll see like a tidal wave and may hit us today like a tidal wave as well. So we're going to look at this text. We're going to see three things. One, we're going to see Growing fame, two, we're going to see a quick claim, and three, we'll see half-hearted devotion. Growing fame, a quick claim, and half-hearted devotion. So let's look at verse 18. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. So ever since Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 4, we've seen this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, side character, if you will, the crowd, this crowd that keeps growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Look at Matthew 4, 23 through 25. This is right after, you know, John the Baptist has been his hype man. Leading up in uh, the beginning of Matthew, Jesus finally shows up. John the Baptist says, There he is, no longer focus on me, focus on him. Jesus is baptized. He's sent out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He withstands the temptation and then he begins his ministry. And this is the description we see of Jesus beginning his ministry Matthew 4. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So Jesus begins his ministry and crowds from all the surrounding cities begin to hear of his fame and begin to come look for him and find him. And then he stands on the mount and gives the most famous sermon of all time, right? only to increase this fame. Matthew 7, at the end of the sermon, when Jesus was finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So everywhere Jesus goes, the crowd just grow and grow and grow. In the past three weeks, as these crowds are following him, we see that growth continue. We see him heal someone with leprosy. We see him heal a Gentile who's not even in the same area as him. And then last week, Tim preached an excellent sermon on uh, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law and then casting out all the surrounding demons. So all of the fame is just growing and growing and growing. And with it, people's expectations of Jesus. Could this be the promised Messiah? Could this be the promised king of David who's going to finally overthrow Rome? Could this be the one that's finally going to fix all of our problems and improve all of our lives? And notice Jesus' reaction when he sees the crowd. When Jesus looks at the crowd, when he sees his fame that's growing and growing and growing, he wants to leave. He sees the crowd, and his reaction is to say, Let's go to the other side, right? Not what you would expect. So Matthew here is introducing this idea of our expectations and the reality of why Jesus is here are wildly, wildly different. He sees the crowd and he doesn't say, great, my teachings must be spreading as I planned. My fame must be spreading as I planned. Let's get this thing bigger. Rather, he says, I want to leave. Introducing this idea of our expectations might be a little bit off, not lining up with the reality of why Jesus is here. That's exactly what he's going to show us with these next two encounters. He's going to show up, or two people are going to come to him with strong expectations and slam into the reality of why Jesus is here. So let's look at the first one. The first one. Let's look at the scribe who makes a quick claim. A quick claim. Look at verse 19. The crowd is growing. Jesus wants to go to the other side. And seemingly, probably before he can get to the other side, a scribe steps up from within the crowd and says this. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You want to go to the other side of the sea? I'll follow you wherever you go. I will follow you. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So just to give you a little bit of context, people up until now have just been following Jesus, right? The crowd is just going. Fame is spreading, and people are just following him. So the crowd's growing, and this is the first time we see someone ask Jesus if they can follow him. We've seen Jesus call Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right, when they're fishing, but this is the first time someone asks Jesus, can I follow you? And we actually see Jesus's answer his response. And the first person is a scribe, which a scribe, if you know your your gospel accounts, scribes and the Pharisees are usually Jesus' biggest opponents in ministry, but this scribe is a fan, right? He's a part of the crowd that's been following Jesus. So so what is a scribe? A scribe is a teacher of the law, a teacher of uh, the scriptures. This man asking Jesus or just declaring, I'll follow you wherever, would have known his Bible better than almost anybody. This is the Bible scholar, right? This is the, the Harvard graduate. He's got multiple seminary degrees with honors, and he's got his PhD in theology. This man knows his, most, his Old Testament very, very well, and he shows up and makes this very passionate, very bold claim. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever, right? Wherever you go, I'm there. He's this all-star candidate wanting to follow Jesus, and what does Jesus respond with. Foxes have holes to live in, right? Birds of the air have nests to settle in, but I don't have a bed. I have no pillow to rest my head at night. I have no home to relax after a hard, long day. There is no such comfort that the birds and the animals enjoy in following me. There is no such luxury in following me. What is he doing? It's like the opposite of our evangelistic strategy, right? Where we're like, please, don't you want to become a Christian? And someone shows up and says, I'm super qualified. Can I become a Christian? And Jesus is like, it's going to be unbelievably hard. What's he doing? Doesn't he want numbers? Didn't he show up, right, to have more Christians and to have this kind of big growing movement that would last 2,000 years up until today, what is he doing? Quite simply, Jesus is exposing the scribe's heart. Jesus is exposing the scribe's heart. He's made this great claim, I'll follow you wherever you go, and Jesus says, let's see. Let's see if that's true. Just to shed some light on this, if you're a scribe in Jesus' day, a, a scribe's reputation could be bolstered by the teacher you kind of united yourself to, the, the, the rabbi you united yourself to. So uh, one of the things that, uh, so Lee, uh, our, our, our new guy, Lee, he's great, uh, he went to a, a great seminary, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and one of his jokes, or I hope it's a joke, it's a joke uh, that he always does. His, so his school has a bunch of famous professors. Like one of our commentaries that the, the teaching team reads uh, for Matthew, one of his professors wrote D. A. Carson. And so Lee will always pretend like he has a very close personal uh, relationship with all of these famous professors. He did take their classes, but they probably think his name's Chris or something. Uh, and so we'll be reading, you know, the commentary, and Lee will be like, "Oh, who is that? Is that my buddy Don? Yeah." Uh, And we're like, okay, it's been like a month. and uh, Right? So it's a a funny, it's a a fun joke. I I also do the same thing. There's a a well-known pastor named uh, Mark Dever who, like, I sent his church an email one time years ago asking, like, how they planted churches and what were their strategies uh, to kind of help at Parkway, thinking an intern was going to, like, send me back a, a resource sheet or something. And he called me, and we talked on the phone for eight minutes and 26 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, It was like two seconds, Uh, but then from then I'm like, oh, me and my buddy Mark, yeah, right? So our joke is that our, our, our reputations are bolstered by the high and mighty that we know, and this scribe is thinking that same thing, except he's not joking. Oh, Jesus, that rabbi who just preached that sermon that all of Galilee is talking about? Yeah, I follow that guy. Oh, the one that can cast out demons with a simple word. It can heal people that are miles away without even touching them. Yeah, I follow that guy. Oh, the one that's probably the Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome. I follow that guy. That's, that's right. He's trying to piggyback, if you will, on Jesus' fame. And Jesus' response is, if you follow me, if you really do want to go wherever I go, there's no fame with me. There's no popularity with me. If you follow me, you're going to get poverty. You're going to get uncomfortability. Not a word, but you know what I mean. You're going to get homelessness. Do you still want to go wherever I go? You see what Jesus is doing. He's taking this bold claim, these very passionate words, and saying, does your life line up with these words? Does your heart line up with these very passionate words? Words, because if you follow me, there's no luxury, there's no reputation boost for you, O oh scribe. Rather, your life will not be easier, it will be much, much harder. Very uncomfortable if you go with me wherever I go. So the scribes' passionate words we see are, are too quick. It's a very quick claim. It's bold, it's passionate, but he hasn't counted the cost. Of following Jesus and so what you and I need to ask ourselves 2,000 years later is have we counted the cost of following the same living Savior or have we just made a quick bold claim of Christianity have we counted the cost of of following him? Is Christianity just a deal you made with God where you'll accept Jesus into your heart and get heaven and not get hell, but nothing about your life changes? It's a deal you made years ago when you went to an evangelistic campaign and walked an aisle, but nothing about your life has changed since. Is growing in sanctification Growing in holiness, loving one another, diving deep into the family of God and pouring out your life for your brothers and sisters here. Is that optional to you? Is it just what the super extra godly people do, the people that raise their hand during worship? But that's not normal Christianity. Have you come to him because of what he might give you? Like the scribe, maybe heaven or maybe an easier Life, because Jesus is very mercifully letting us know here it doesn't work like that. We don't get to dictate the terms of following Jesus. He does, and we get to count the cost. Do we really want to follow him? Do we really want to accept these terms? Is he really worth it? Because if we have some sort of light, super easy, super fluffy version of Christianity that actually requires nothing of your life. I don't know where you've gotten that from because here's the horse's mouth. Here's the high cost. He dictates the terms, not us. We may have made too quick a claim without counting the cost. And if you want an easy kind of diagnostic question, just simply ask yourself, does Jesus exist for me or do I exist for him? Does he exist for me to make me happy, to give me the desires of my heart, to fulfill every dream I have, or do I exist for him to praise his glory, to make his name known with every breath that he gives me? One is the scribe, the other is Christianity. And when you are examining yourself, notice here, don't examine your words. The scribe has great words, the best words. The false disciples of Matthew 7, great words. They call him Lord. He calls him good teacher, says I'll follow you. That's great. Don't examine your words. Examine your life. Examine your actions because you may, with your lips, really like him. And you may even have great affection for Jesus, but your life still might not belong to him. Anybody who has had one to one and a half conversations with me knows that uh, I am idolatrously in love with uh, Lionel Messi, uh, which if you've been following the World Cup, he plays for Argentina. We almost canceled service when they lo- almost lost uh, this, this weekend, but they didn't, and so here we are. Uh, and it's, it's, I, I woke up at 4 a.m. to watch them lose to Saudi Arabia because I felt like he needed me to be there with him. Uh, right? I, I just, it's, it's too much, right? So many of you now text me. I have to put my phone in the other room because I'm watching some of the games on delay. So I'm just getting all these texts from you guys because you know my heart just loves Messi. You insult him, I will insult you, right? And I will put an X over your name in the church directory, stuff like that, right? I love Messi. That's not true uh, if you're new. Um, well, maybe. Uh, I love Messi, but he exists for me in our relationship. If he didn't play soccer, I would not know him nor care. He would be another 5-foot-6 Argentinian that I don't know anything about. Right? He exists to entertain me. He will one day retire and you won't hear about him from the stage as much, right? Because ultimately, though I really like him, he exists for me in our relationship. Is that how your relationship is with the living Savior. You're very passionate about him. You might even speak about him a lot. You come to church every Sunday, but ultimately, he exists for you. You will not lay down your life for him. Your life does not ultimately belong to him. That's the scribe. And Jesus, again, is mercifully saying, it doesn't work like that. You don't get to just like me. Follow me or don't follow me. Crown me as king of your life or kill me. There is no third, just like me option. So the scribe is too quick to promise. He doesn't count the costs. He doesn't really realize what he's saying. He doesn't realize the the cost of following Jesus is much higher than he had expected. And what Matthew's actually doing here is something we're going to see him do throughout uh, the rest of the book. He's introducing what uh, scholars will often call the cost of discipleship. We'll see this several more times. In fact, they'll grow in how extreme they get. But quite simply, the cost of discipleship is just this, this reality that if you follow Jesus, what is true of him will be true of you. If you follow Jesus, if you want to call yourself a Christian, a little Christ, what is true of him will be true of you. Here we see his homelessness will be true of you. His suffering will be true of you. All the uncomfortable things about his life will be true of you. Jesus will say elsewhere in Matthew 10, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master, it is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, the prince of demons, an insult, often lobbed Jesus' his way. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? What's true of him will be true of you. A disciple is not greater than his teacher. John 15 If they kept my word, they would also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on my account because they do not know him who sent me. And perhaps most famous, Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is true of him... Will be true of you. That is the cost of discipleship. It's true in his sufferings, but there's another side to that coin we'll look at in a little bit. It's also true of his glory. But we'll look at that in a little bit. So, this is the first person. The scribe comes to him very enthusiastically, makes this quick claim, but he hasn't counted the cost. He's almost certainly staggered by Jesus' response, right? He's got his shiny resume that he's surely, this teacher would want him to follow him, but his expectations are nowhere near the reality of following Jesus. He has not counted the cost of discipleship. That's the first one we see. The next person we see, a disciple, come up to him, and he doesn't have a quick claim. Rather, he has half-hearted devotion. He has half-hearted devotion. And if you were offended by the scribe, buckle up, because this one's going to be a lot more offensive to you. Look at verse 21. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So, first of all, who is this? A disciple? Who's this guy? Another one of the disciples. Again, Jesus hasn't called the 12 yet. We've seen him call the four. And we'll see him call Matthew and then the rest of the 12 Later on, but again, this is just in the great crowd. Uh, we'll see uh, all throughout the Gospels and even into Acts, there's the 12 disciples, but there's also many disciples just that are in the crowd. You know, Mary Magdalene, Martha, Lazarus, Zacchaeus, they're just people that he's encountering that when we see the story show up, he's friends with them, and it's because they've been following him. Or in Acts, when the disciples are thinking, we need to replace Judas, they specifically say, let's pick someone who's been with us from the beginning. Right, So they pick somebody who's been following for a long, long time. So this disciple is almost certainly just someone from the crowd, notice, who has already been following him. He's heard the Sermon on the Mount, maybe was following him from before, but he's been following him. Uh, but now he's got something that's kind of come up in his life that he wants to, to go take care of. And so he asks Jesus, can I go bury my dad? Lord, uh, let me first go and bury my father. So there's two views uh, of, of what's what he's actually asking. The first is that his father has died recently, and so he's just asking, can he go perform kind of the ritual duties uh, of a son? Uh, in, in Jewish custom, the children, there was just a high obligation of, you would have buried your father uh, the day he, he passed away, and then it would have been several weeks of mourning, a whole lot of uh, customs and things like that that would have required his attention. So he's asking, can I, can I go do all that and then come back and follow you? And then uh, another view is uh, that a lot of scholars think because there is so much that would be required of a son whose father had just passed away, uh, he would have been way too busy. He wouldn't be following Jesus in the first place. He would be doing all that stuff. And so some scholars think his dad's not dead yet. His dad's just old or sick or something like that. And he's asking Jesus, my dad's close Uh, to passing away, can I wait until he passes away, perform all these duties, and then come back and follow you? Either way, the, the essence of what he's asking is the same. He's saying, can I stop following you? Can I go take care of this more important thing? And then can I come back and resume my discipleship? Can I postpone my discipleship? Can I postpone following you? Go do this more important thing that I need to take care of and then come back and resume my discipleship. And Jesus replies, no. Jesus says, follow me, which is probably better translated, keep following me. It's in the present tense. Keep following me. Keep doing what you've been doing and leave the dead to bury their own dead, which sounds a little harsh. So first of all, what's he saying? That phrase, leave the dead to bury their own dead, kind of doesn't make sense. What does he mean by that? Uh, If you take it literally, again, it's very confusing. How can a corpse bury another corpse? Uh, But if you think about it, again, in the context of the book of Matthew or Jesus' ministry, it's all been about life in the kingdom. He came preaching the kingdom. The whole Sermon on the Mount was about life in the kingdom. And so almost certainly what Jesus means here is leave those who are spiritually dead, to bury the physically dead. Let those who are spiritually dead, those outside of the kingdom, take care of the physically dead. One of the things that Jesus' arrival on the scene refocuses the whole world's eyes to, the reality that we now see plainly when he shows up is that only true life is found in him and that everyone outside of him is dead, though they may be walking around. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. True life is only found in me. Those who are united to me, anyone outside of me is dead, though their hearts may be beating. Ephesians 2, we get another picture. You were dead, you were dead, past tense, in your trespasses and sins. Before you met Jesus, when you were alive, walking around, heart beating, breathing air, but in your trespasses and sins, you were dead. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? Made us alive with Christ. That's the portrait the New Testament is going to paint For us, only true life is found in him, and everything outside of him is just death. And so Jesus is almost certainly saying, you have been following me. You found life. Don't leave life for death. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Leave those outside of the kingdom, those spiritually dead, to bury the dead. He's quite simply saying, following me isn't leaving the good for the best. It's leaving death for life. Now, that doesn't solve the main problem that everyone in this room is feeling right now, which is, isn't this a little harsh from our sweet Jesus, from our Savior that's supposed to be kind and merciful? Guy just wants to bury his dad. Is it really that big of a deal? Isn't this a little harsh, Jesus? Surely this guy can take a couple weeks and then go find you. You're not going to be that far. Sea of Galilee's not that big, right? You're just sailing to the other side. You can... Send him a little note. What's the big deal, right? Everyone in this room, almost certainly, is feeling that. Nobody's like, yeah, I love a mean Jesus, right? And so here is where our hearts need to be exposed a little bit. Mine as well. I'll be honest. I read this today, and that, that flares up inside of me. But the two things in life that are most essential for us to be able to, to see things rightly, the two fundamental elements of reality are the two things that we forget the most often, and that's who God is and who we are. There's a very famous uh, clip, uh, YouTube clip from uh, the late R.C. Sproul, uh, who's a great uh, pastor. He was doing a Q&A session, I guess after a, a conference or something, uh, and he's on stage, and, and somebody asked this question. Since God is slow to anger and patient... Uh, Why then, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe? And those of you who are snickering have probably seen the clip. If God's so patient, if he's so kind, why, when Adam just eats a fruit, is his punishment so extreme and so severe? (laughs) And R.C. Sproul uh, responds, he goes, time out. The punishment is too severe This creature, made from the dirt, defies the everlasting holy God after the God had said, when you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lives another day, and God clothes him in his nakedness by pure grace And he reserves the worst of all the curses for sin on the serpent, the one who tempted him, whose head would eventually be crushed by a savior that he would send. And the punishment was too severe. And then he looks at the crowd and says, what's wrong with you people? And everyone laughed and he did not laugh. And he said, this is what's wrong with the church in America today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't the punishment infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question. End clip, right? And so similarly here, when we see things that Jesus says that make us recoil, that make us shrink back, That make us think, I hope a new believer doesn't read this passage, right? Particularly when he's asking a lot from our lives. We've made the mistake, we've forgotten who he is, and we've forgotten who we are. This rabbi walking on the shores of Galilee, on the streets of Capernaum, is the eternal God-made flesh. Everything was made by him. Everything in the heavens, everything on the earth, everything visible and invisible was made by his hand. The stars sing his praises. Heaven bursts forth to celebrate his birth. The volcanoes erupt to his glory. The mountains reach up to proclaim His majesty, the oceans are a teardrop in His hand. Everything was made by Him and for Him. That's who He is. And this disciple has the audacity to say, I've got more important things to take care of, but when I'm done with that, will you still be around? I've got some other things that require my attention, eternal God of the universe. But when I'm done and I can make time for you, can I come back? Will you still be preaching and healing around here whenever I can give you the time? That's what's happening here. Jesus is not being harsh, he is being unthinkably patient and merciful. Instead of striking him dead on the spot, which he could have justly done, he says, don't go back to death. Keep having life in me. What's wrong with you people, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this is the equivalent of saying at your proposal, hey, can I go date everyone else and see if any of them satisfy me more? And if not, I would love to marry you. That's what he's saying. It seems harsh if we've forgotten who he's talking to, who we're reading about, and if we've forgotten who we are. So, what is Jesus showing us by this? The disciple, again, he's got the words, but he's half hearted. The scribe was too quick to make this very bold claim. This disciple is too slow. He calls Jesus Lord, right? Everything about his speech, the best words, he's great but his life doesn't measure up. He offers himself conditionally. I'll follow you if you give me some time off. And Jesus is saying, following me will require all of you. It will require your whole life. Following me requires not half-hearted devotion, total devotion. There is no such thing as a half-hearted follower of Jesus. If you want life in him, you will have to die to everything else. He will have all of you or none of you. There's no third way. There's no lukewarm way. There's no middle way. So again, we need to ask ourselves, Bible Belt Christians, is Jesus the one we get to when all of our other more important things are done? Work is crazy right now. When it settles down, then I'll really dig into the Scriptures. Then I'll really devote myself to to prayer and having a robust prayer life. The season with the kids is just really crazy right now. On the other side of it, then I'll really disciple others, right? And they'll disciple me. When, When the church has kind of programs that more fit my wants and needs, then I'll really invest my time. Is that more of a description of how we Live as disciples of Jesus because Jesus here, again, mercifully is saying, no, no, I'll have all of you or I'll have none of you. If you want to follow me, everything in your life is mine. Your time is mine. Your money is mine. Your affections are mine. Your future hopes and dreams and plans are all mine. Your whole life is mine. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist pastor, says, If Christ be anything, he must be everything. If Christ be anything, he must be everything. Following him means total, complete devotion to him, which is exactly the description you see right at the beginning of the church. In the book of Acts, As Christ ascends and sits on his throne at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit of God is poured out on the disciples. Peter stands up, preaches the first Christian sermon, and thousands come into the kingdom. We get a beautiful summary of what what is the mark of this new church? What is the mark of the people of Jesus? This beautiful description. This is my prayer for, for our church, Acts 2, 24 through 27. And they devoted with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Their lives were his, not just simply their words. They didn't say, sounds good, Peter. I would like to become a Christian. They cried out, what must I do to be saved? Their lives were his you will devote your life to something or someone, whether you like it or not. You are by your very nature a worshiper, and you cannot change that reality. You will devote yourself to power or money or prestige, and when you get it, it will fill you briefly, and it will quickly fade, and you will need more of it, and you will be a slave to it, and when you don't have it, you will be shattered. You will devote your life to something or someone. And the only way to actually be free is to devote your life to the one that you were made for. All things were made by him and for him, primarily you. And who else would you want to give your life to? You're going to give your life to something or someone. Why not give it To the gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, King of the universe, who is also your Savior, who will work out everything for your good and make all your bad things untrue. Who else would you want to give your life to than the glorious Savior, King Jesus? Uh, Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor, said to his people almost 200 years ago, Oh, dear souls, if you got but a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus, you would leave all and follow him. If you got but a taste of the sweetness of forgiveness, you would count everything else lost for the excellencies of the knowledge of Christ. Oh, pray that you may be made willing to leave all for Christ. He is kinder than father or mother more precious than son or daughter. Take up your cross then and follow him. So Jesus demands total devotion from this disciple and from all his disciples. And that's where the story ends. Notice we don't see the scribe's response and we don't see this disciple's response to Jesus' Words And most commentators I read think Matthew is purposefully withholding their responses so that you and I, the readers, might put ourselves and ask, what about you? Do you just have quick words or have you counted the cost? Will you be half-hearted or will you be total in your devotion? And as that question settles on us, I imagine... The temptation for all of us in this room would be to just see the high call of Jesus and jump to our failing performance. To say, the scribe and the disciples seem up here and the call is even higher. I'm, I'm somewhere here, so I guess I can't follow Jesus. And shame and, and condemnation fills our hearts as we think about our own failures before this perfect Savior. And if you were to do that, that would be a mistake. It would, in fact, totally misunderstand this passage because Jesus here isn't teaching. Here's the bar, and if you want to follow me, you got to be here. In fact, he's here on the earth in this scene because we are infinitely this way. He's here to live the perfect life on our behalf. Jesus isn't teaching. The requirement for my followers is perfect performance. He's teaching. The requirement for my followers is Surrender. Don't misunderstand those two. Notice Jesus never goes after the scribes. He never goes after the all-stars. Who are those that he fills his tables with? It's the prostitutes. It's the fishermen. It's the tax collectors. And it's the sinners. It's the failures. But it's those who know they need a Savior. Those who are very, very, very aware that they're poor in spirit That there's nothing here that they could claim, and they need a Savior, and so they will very willingly and very joyfully surrender their lives to this Savior. Jesus isn't teaching about perfect performance. He's teaching about joyful surrender. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor during World War II, says this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come die to everything else in the world. Come lay down your life, but find true life in me. We talked earlier about the cost of discipleship. What's true of him will be true of you. And it's true in his sufferings, it's also true in his glory. One of the most beautiful passages in all the scriptures, in my opinion, is Colossians 3 1 through 4. Speaking of Christians who have come and laid down their lives to Jesus, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Why? Verse 3, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Come to him and die. Lay down all the worthless things from the world that are in the palm of your hand and let him fill you with true life. Is there anything more wonderful than the statement, your life is hidden with Christ in God? And if it could get any better, verse 4, and when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. What is true of him is true of you. In his sufferings, yes, discipleship is a daunting task. Count the cost, but also in his glory. When he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Everything that is his, everything that is the son of the living gods is yours because he is yours Or rather, you are his when you come to him and you lay down your life. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Not the perfect performance, but the perfect surrender. And maybe the most incredible thing, as we wrap up, is that even in our failing to surrender, how does Jesus react? Does he strike us down and just display his perfect justice? No. He's forgiving and he's merciful even in our failure to surrender our lives. How do I know? Peter. Peter, who's following Jesus here, sees the scribe, sees this disciple, will have his own quick claim. They're in the upper room. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. Jesus tells them, you are, you are all going to desert me. And Peter boldly, passionately stands up and says, Not I, Lord. All these weaklings might. I will die for you. And that very night, he says, I don't know that man. I'm not one of his. Denies him three times. Peter has his own quick claims. Peter also has his own half-hearted devotion. After the crucifixion, what does Peter go back to? Is he fishing for men? No. He's a fisherman again. His devotion is half-hearted. And so Jesus shows up and encounters Peter at the end of the gospel of John. And what does he do? Does he chastise him saying, I told you so? Told you you were weak? Does he beat him down? Does he strike him down? No. He cooks him breakfast, shares a meal with him, pulls him to the side and says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Follow me. He forgives him. However low Peter is, Jesus goes lower and lifts him up and empowers him. And Peter does go and feed his sheep. And Peter will preach the first sermon of the Christian church. And Peter will endure incredible persecution for the sake of his Savior, rejoicing, pointing at the wounds, praising God that he was counted worthy to be shamed for the name of Jesus. And he will eventually give his life, not because... He finally just got it together and started obeying, stopped putting his foot in his mouth, but he finally rested in the strength of an incredible Savior. Your discipleship is not the story of you finally getting it together and obeying and stop failing so much. Rather, your story is the story of an incredible Savior who came and succeeded where you failed. And reached into your heart and pulled out the stone heart and gave you a heart of flesh and sent his spirit that you might walk in his ways and declare his glorious name. So, follow him. It will not be comfortable, it will not be on your terms, but oh, it will be glorious because he is so glorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. Forgive us for our continued failure. And I pray that as we do fail, it does nothing but send our eyes upward to where our life is. I pray that you would sanctify us, that you would send your spirit to pull out the sinful weeds of our heart that the fruit of the spirit might be born, that we might be known as people who are patient and kind and joyful and that look like our Savior, that we might be bold in the face of persecution, that the the discomforts of this world and the persecutions of this world won't be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us when Christ, our life, appears. And I pray that you would just open the eyes of our hearts to that reality, that we might not forget who you are, who your son is, and who we are and you would shut the mouths of the enemy that would seek to to draw our eyes to our own works or to condemn us where we need not be condemned. I pray that you would make very clear in our hearts the difference between the evil whispers of the tempter and the glorious, painful conviction of your spirit that leads to life. Give us the conviction, Lord, and turn our eyes to you, we pray in your son's beautiful name. Amen.